out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. With Halloween coming up, I wanted to create an episode of scary stories that are spectacularly spooky, tales that will chill your spine and freeze your soul. I have a mixture of scary stories from my own life, stories from family and friends, and stories that listeners have directed my attention to. Fact or fiction, fantasy or reality, I'm going to let you decide. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. My student loan provider greatly appreciates all the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here I am chatting about all the scary things in this life. Enjoy. Act 1. The Room Behind the Door. In this first act, I want to start things off gently. You know, nothing too scary. I ask listeners to send me their scary stories or direct me towards some interesting spooky phenomena. One listener named Ryan pointed me to A.J. Ayer's near-death experience. I had completely forgotten about this story. So for those of you who do not know, Ayer is one of the great British atheist philosophers of the 20th century. He always maintained that consciousness ceases to exist at death until one fateful day when he had a brush with death. Ayer went to a doctor for a medical examination. As the doctor was monitoring Ayer's heart, well, his heart just stopped beating. Ayer died for four minutes. And here's how Ayer described what he experienced. This is a quote from him. He says, I was confronted by a red light, exceedingly bright, and also very painful even when I turned away from it. I was aware that this light was responsible for the government of the universe. Among its ministers were two creatures who had been put in charge of space. These ministers periodically inspected space and had recently carried out such an inspection. They had, however, failed to do their work properly, with the result that space, like a badly fitting jigsaw puzzle, was slightly out of joint. A further consequence was that the laws of nature had ceased to function as they should. I felt that it was up to me to put things right. I also had the motive of finding a way to extinguish the painful light. I assumed that it was signaling that space was awry and that it would switch itself off when, when it was ordered to restore. Unfortunately, I had no idea where the guardians of space had gone and feared that even if I found them, I should not be able to communicate with them. It then occurred to me that whereas, until the present century, physicists accepted the Newtonian severance of space and time, it had become customary, since the vindication of Einstein's general theory of relativity, to treat space and time as a single whole. Accordingly, I thought that I could cure space by operating upon time. I was vaguely aware that the ministers who had been given charge of time were in my neighborhood, and I proceeded to hail them. I was again frustrated. Either they did not hear me, or they chose to ignore me, or they did not understand me. I then hit upon the expedient of walking up and down, waving my watch in hope of drawing their attention not to my watch itself, but to time, to the time which it measured. This elicited no response. I became more and more desperate until the experience suddenly came to an end. So that's, that's Ayer. Now, now, what's interesting about this near-death experience is that Ayer did not become convinced that God exists. He came to believe that the mind can continue to exist after death, but he maintains that that's not evidence for the existence of God. Now, here, here's the next story. So another listener named Alex directed me towards this story. Uh, it, it, it's, it's about uh, Orthodox priests in Greece in 1867. There's this thing called the Nomocanon. 
and and it gives advice to different priests. And so it has this one uh, following bit of advice. Those who have burned vrikolakas and were coated in their smoke should not receive communion for at least six years. Now you're probably now you're probably wondering like what on earth is a is a vrikolakas? Well, they're they're uh, instruments of the devil who appear at night, wandering to and fro, harming, destroying, and predicting the future. And there are those who are many days or even many years dead and return among the living as one who is young with flesh and bones. Thus, when these people hurried to burn the dead, having exhumed them and having seen the Veracolas filled with blood, having long hair and long nails, they should have known that this accursed relics would be resurrected again on the day of judgment. When he would stand before the dread and impartial judge, then he would be sent to the outermost eternal fire, damned for eternity, unless he truly repents of his impiety. When this kind of satanic demon is identified, the priest should have been called to perform a supplicatory canon to the Theotokos and to, bl- and to the blessings of waters. So basically, like, if you come across one of these demon childs, uh, you know, you don't... <laughs> You gotta, you gotta do a particular thing. Like, don't, don't, don't burn them. You gotta, you gotta, gotta put some holy water on them or something like that. And then you gotta do a special chant for an exorcism for this baptismal service. So, th- so there you have it—a bit of demonology in Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, now Christianity is not the only religion to speak of demons most foul. Buddhism divides reality into six realms. The lowest realm is a hell dimension where the wicked suffer, and then the next level up is the realm of the hungry ghosts. The hungry ghosts are ethereal beings with large stomachs and tiny mouths. Given their tiny mouths, they are unable to satisfy their greedy cravings. Okay, so here's another story from a different listener. This one is from a listener named David. So David says, So here's my true story of the self-playing guitar. So a friend and I, we were staying over at another friend's house. We're having a good time and whatnot. It's late at night. My friend who lived there is a musician. Uh, So we had an acoustic guitar on a guitar stand. Right as we're talking, right in the room with us, with no one touching it, the guitar strung itself. And all of us were there. We all saw it. Now, I would have excused this, but it happened two more times. Two more times. And since we're all Christians that night, ended in worship service sparked by being spooked. I love that. I love that. So you get kind of freaked out by this guitar that just starts playing itself. And you decide, you know what? You know what we need right now? Let's just, uh, just, uh, let's just play some a little bit of uh, praise and worship music right now. Now, as fascinating as all of this is, I find myself skeptical about ghosts. I don't really believe in ghosts. But, but you know what? I've definitely ran quickly through a dark hallway, you know, just in case. And sometimes as I run through a dark forest or like a sinister looking passage, I'm reminding myself the whole time, ghosts aren't real, ghosts aren't real, ghosts aren't real. You know, we, we've all been there. In fact, Dr. Imasani and I, we, we have a ghost agreement. Now, neither of us believe in ghosts, but we have a ghost agreement just in case. When we buy a house, if either of us have some sort of paranormal experience, we, we will immediately move out. That, that's our agreement. When you watch a movie with a haunted house, the paranormal activity always starts out like somewhat mild, just something to try to scare away the living inhabitants of the house. And and as like these activities are repeated over and over again throughout such stories, the ghost activity, it always gets more and more intense until it's just too late. So Em and I, we've decided that like if anything happens like the very beginning, like any sort of like haunting of any sort, like we're just going to move out right away before things get crazy. 
Now, now again, I don't, I don't really believe in ghosts, but let me tell you about the decrepit New England farmhouse that I lived in. I taught at Northfield Mount Hermon one semester in 2016. So this is a boarding school in a mountain in Massachusetts. There's nothing around for miles. The closest Wendy's was a 20-minute drive away. And, and you, guys know, you guys know I love my Wendy's. It's always fresh. It's never frozen. Anyway, the boarding school provided me with accommodation. It was an old farmhouse off campus that was genuinely falling apart. My house had a front porch that was condemned, and so they told me, like, you're not allowed to set foot on it. This, this place was huge, but I had no possessions. I had nothing to bring with me. The school, they gave me a student bed and a, and a desk, and they also gave me a tiny couch. That was all the furniture I had in this place. Now, this farmhouse had a set of stairs that led down to the front door. Now, now remember, I couldn't use the front door because it was condemned. But at the front door, there was a ring on the ground. It was a trap door that you could pull up. As you pulled it up, it revealed a set of wooden, creaky stairs. When I descended these stairs, I discovered an unfinished basement. The floor was dirt. There's chicken wire it was stretched out across part of the room to create some sort of divider. The boiler, it just howled and hissed. I mean, this genuinely looked like the lair of a serial killer. And, and I had to go down there every now and then to reset the old boiler. I, I, I hated it. I hated every time I had to go down there. It was so creepy. Now, like I said, this farmhouse was quite large. There were three bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, and two living rooms. I chose to put my tiny bed in the bedroom closest to the hallway door. I did my best to ignore the other two empty dark rooms in this farmhouse. The tiny couch was placed in the first living room. The second living room contained a large fireplace, but no lights. That's right, no lights at all. So, so I did my best to just you know, never go in there. Everything in this old farmhouse, it creaked and cracked throughout the winter. The pipes were always making noises. And for the most part, I was able to ignore these sounds. But there was another room in this farmhouse that I have not yet mentioned. The room behind the door. In the living room, there was a large wooden door that was kept closed. I only went in this room once when I first moved in, and then never again. Behind the door lay a small room. I mean, nothing terribly interesting about this small room. I don't know what it could be used for. I mean, it was too small to be a bedroom, and it was far too large to be a closet. Yet the room contained another door. And behind this door was a set of stairs that leads to the attic. And when I first moved in, I wanted to explore the whole house. So I flipped the switch to turn the lights on for the stairs in the attic. Yet... Nothing seemed to turn on. I pulled out my phone and turned on my flashlight. As I walked up the stairs, I noticed a bit of light coming from the attic. It was a light that I had not seen before. Once I arrived fully upstairs, I could see a single light bulb hanging from a cord on one end of the attic. Though I felt no breeze, this light bulb swung back and forth, illuminating different parts of my surroundings. As I passed my flashlight around the attic, I discovered old paintings and church pews. I wanted to sit on one of the old church pews, but it was covered in dust. There were all sorts of old boxes and trunks. I didn't dare to open any of those because I saw something that made my blood run cold. The swinging light bulb at one end of the attic was not the only thing swinging in the still air. On the other end of the attic, I noticed a rope hanging from the ceiling. It was in the shape of a noose. Again, I felt no breeze, but I watched that noose swing slowly back and forth, back, and forth, back, and forth. After standing there frozen for what felt like an eternity, I decided to go back downstairs. I quickly descended the stairs and shut the door behind me. 
The room seemed smaller and somehow darker. I quickly exited the room back into my living room. I closed the door behind me. I never went back in that room behind the door again. And I lived in this farmhouse for six months, and I never once went back to the room behind the door. I kept that thing shut for the remainder of my stay. Now, now here's the thing. After living in this, this farmhouse for a week, the school offered to give me a different house on campus. They gave me the key to this other place so I could check it out and make up my own mind about where I wanted to live for that semester. Before I describe this next house, let me give you a bit of a backstory. So I came to this boarding school in January of 2016. And you might be wondering why I would start my teaching job in January. Well, the previous teacher had some kind of mental breakdown and he was forced to leave campus shortly after the semester started. I never got all the details on what happened. And I didn't really ask because I felt like it was none of my business. But my students told me that the former teacher was caught preaching to the trees. Yes, you, you heard me correctly. Preaching to the trees. Now, now, like, I mean, that sounds crazy. And so I've got these 16-year-old students telling me that a former teacher's preaching to the trees. I, I mean, come on. Like, I, I, I'm not going to believe what these teenagers are telling me. Like, I mean, that's just not a reliable source of information. But several teachers would casually tell me different bits of the story. I had several teachers mention in passing that the former guy did have a mental breakdown and that he had been muttering to the trees. None of the teachers used the phrase preaching to the trees, but several of them said that he was muttering to the trees or he was found talking to himself. Again, I don't know the full details, but everyone seems to agree that this guy had a breakdown and that he was muttering and pacing the forest that surrounded campus. So that's the backstory for why I am at this boarding school. Okay, so back to the second house. So again, the school said I could check out the second house and see if I wanted to live in it. They admitted that the farmhouse that they placed me in was, was a bit of a dump, uh, and they thought I might like this other house instead. Now, one night, I go to the second house. It's closer to campus. That's a benefit. It's closer to some of the other young teachers. That's, that's a plus. It actually had some furniture. That's definitely a plus compared to the farmhouse. But something seemed off about this place. I stayed there for about two hours to figure out if I wanted to live there for the semester. And this house was huge. It had so many different rooms. I don't remember exactly how many. The ceiling in these rooms, they were uneven. Uh, some of them, like, it was slanted, and, and I couldn't stand up straight in these rooms. So I'm constantly, like, hunched over as I'm trying to explore this place. And the lighting, it was terrible. Many of the rooms only had a single light bulb. Now, given my single light bulb experience at the farmhouse, this was not comforting to me. This house had one huge room. I guess it could serve as a salon or like a recreation room. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I, I could easily host a dance party in this thing because it's so big. But it also had a single light bulb that did not light up the room. The far end of the room did not have a wall. Instead, it had a giant window that looked out into the wilderness. In front of this window was a small desk. My, my boss told me that this was the best setting to write an existentialist novel. As I sat at the desk, staring out into the snow-covered forest, I did not think about writing a novel. Instead, I thought about writing, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Now, the entire time I was wandering around this house, I felt this sense of unease. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I felt like this place was a place of madness. And this is not a usual experience for me. Like, I don't usually walk around just feeling madness in the air. I mean, what is that? So, so this experience, it made me feel uncomfortable. But I couldn't put my finger on why I felt this way. 
until I found this closet with a seemingly hidden door behind it. This extra door led to a long hallway or some sort of like storage space or storage corridor. I'm not really certain what to call it, but it actually had good lighting. Finally, a space with good lighting. There were boxes in this hallway, and I opened one and I discovered a bunch of books, and the books belonged to the guy who was forced off campus, the guy who had a mental breakdown. At that point, I finally identified my sense of unease about this place. It's the kind of house where one will slowly descend into madness. I could foresee myself going crazy in this place, and the last guy who lived there did go crazy. So you know what I did? I decided to spend my semester living in a decrepit farmhouse, quickly running through its dark corridors, pretending that ghosts do not exist. The Woman in White. I'm not a very charismatic person. I don't buy into speaking in tongues or exorcisms or divining malevolent spirits. But when a trusted friend tells me about their experience, I pay close attention. I had several people tell me that they detected dark spirits in St. Andrews. Normally, I would ignore this as just crazy talk, but these were from friends that I trust. These were people who are rational, they're well-educated, and they do not have a habit of talking about demons or spirits or anything. So when they tell me that they felt the presence of a dark spirit at St. Andrews, it gives me pause. Then when I reflect on my own experiences at St. Andrews, I suppose that I would not be terribly surprised if there are, in fact, malevolent forces there. But let me tell you a story from some people close to me. This is a couple who never talk about spirits, demons, or angels. They are devout Christians, but they don't talk much about supernatural activity. This story takes place near a seminary in the U.S., At the time, this couple were recently married and living in their first apartment together. The husband was in seminary and the wife had recently finished Bible college. They found an apartment that they could afford close to the seminary. It wasn't the best place, you know, but it wasn't terrible. That is, until they encountered the woman in white. At first, they each separately saw the woman in white. It started out as glimpses in the corner of their eye. They did not immediately tell each other about their experiences. They each individually felt silly and thought that the other just, you know, they're not going to believe me, you know, which, you know, I mean, it makes sense. You don't want to tell your brand new spouse that you're seeing apparitions in your new apartment. But the woman in white started to appear for longer intervals, not just a glimpse in the corner of your eye, but a presence standing directly in front of you. The young couple started to talk about it with each other. They thought they could explain it away, you know, but they were understandably scared. Then one night, the couple was laying in bed fast asleep. They both woke up to the woman in white standing at the foot of their bed, screaming at the top of her lungs. The couple were in a panic. They didn't know what to do. They could no longer explain this as a dream since they both saw the woman in white screaming at them. Now, for whatever reason, they did not leave the apartment. Now, I mean, at this point in the story, this is, this is the part of the story where Emma and I, like, like I said, we've agreed we're just moving out. Like, we would be long gone. But this couple, they stayed in the apartment. The woman in white made the occasional appearance after that night. Sometimes she would appear to only one of them. On a few other occasions, she would enter their bedroom. 
This couple became frantic. They weren't really certain what to do. They decided that it would be best to try to ignore her, and maybe she would just go away once she realized that the couple was not a threat. Then one night, the woman in white appeared again at the foot of the bed, screaming so loudly that the couple could not ignore her. And without thinking, the husband jumped out of bed to confront the ghost. He stood directly in front of the woman in white. He got right in her face and he started yelling at her. He screamed, shut up, shut up, just shut up. How do you like someone screaming at you? The ghost was startled by this. She immediately stopped screaming. She, stood, she just stood frozen for a moment, completely silent. Then she disappeared. After that night, the couple said the woman appeared less often. Her visits became few and far between. Whenever she would manifest, the couple would just tell her to go away or leave them alone. Apparently, the woman in white listened to this request, so the couple were able to live out the rest of their lease at this apartment and just get on with their lives in peace. Indiana. As you might have guessed, I enjoy a good ghost story. When I was working at the boarding school, the librarian told me that he had the death mask of D.L. Moody in the archives. That's right, the guy who founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. You see, D.L. Moody also founded Northfield Mount Hermon. That's the boarding school that I was working at in 2016. Apparently, they used to have his death mask on display in the lobby of the library. But too many parents complained about how creepy it looked. So the librarian eventually moved the death mask into the archives in the basement. And people would sometimes tell me that his ghost walked the stacks in the library. Now, I often had to watch over the library at night. I never experienced anything spooky, but one night I kept smelling strange odors. I mean, this sounds silly, but it, it, it smelled like someone was just crop dusting. You know, like when someone's just like farting and walking by you. But here's the thing. I was in the library by myself that night. There was some event that all the students were attending, so I was completely alone in the library for an hour. And I kept smelling random farts, but no one was around. You know, I can only assume that this was the ghost of D.L. Moody just playing a prank on me. Now, one of my favorite philosophy ghost stories is about John Dunn Scotus. So Scotus taught at Oxford University for a while. He was summoned to Germany under these mysterious circumstances, and he died in Cologne, where he's buried to this day. And there are all sorts of conspiracy theories about this mysterious death. But for whatever reason, there are ghost stories about him as well. Yet the ghost of John Dunn Scotus does not haunt Germany. Apparently his ghost made it all the way back to Merton College at Oxford. There are reports of people seeing the ghost of Scotus haunt the library at Merton College. 
And, and here's one of my favorite details about this haunting. Apparently, the library had a new floor put in place like many years after Scotus's death. This new floor is raised higher than the original flooring. The story goes that the ghost of Scotus walks on the original floor. So when you see Scotus wandering around, you will notice that he's ankle deep in the floor. I, I love that detail. Like just this image of the subtle doctor from the ankle up checking out books in the library. I mean, you know what? When you've got a philosophical mind like that, like why should we expect Scotus to just stop doing philosophy after his death? I mean, maybe he's still working on some interesting bit of philosophical theology from beyond the grave. Okay, here's another story. This one comes from my home state of Indiana. It takes place in Gary, Indiana. If you've ever been to Gary before, you know that this place is a dumpster fire. Gary, Indiana is where Michael Jackson is from. Uh, the Jackson family home is still there, last time I checked. In 1995, the city of Gary was declared the murder capital of the United States. So this is a city that's fallen on hard times. The Indy Star is a newspaper in Indiana. They've done several stories on the Demon House of Gary. Several different people have made documentaries about it. The home renter in this story is named Latoya Ammons. Latoya's three children and her mother Rosa Campbell moved into the Demon House in 2011. Let me read a bit from the Indy Star. So according to the Indy Star, Ammons claimed she and her three young children had been possessed by spirits inside the rental home from 2011 to 2012. The Gary Police Department and the Indiana Department of Child Services investigated, a priest performed exorcisms, and even some of the biggest skeptics were made into believers. So that's, that's what the article says. The article continues. Ammons claims that she and her three children were possessed by demons inside the Northwest Indiana home when they began renting it in November 2011. Immediately after they arrived, Ammons told the Indy Star that, despite cold December temperatures, large black flies swarmed their screened-in porch, and they kept coming back even when the family killed them. From there, things got really strange. Campbell and Ammons heard footsteps on the basement stairs late at night. The basement and kitchen doors creaked open unassisted. And then they claim the demons got to the three children. They told the Indy Star that the kids' eyes bulged, their voices deepened, and they sported evil smiles while possessed. The nine-year-old boy described what it felt like to be killed and walked up the wall in the presence of a family case manager and hospital nurse. Okay, so let me, let me pause here for a second. I've read a lot of different articles on this part of the story before. In one article, a police officer said he was asked to investigate. His name is Charles Austin. He said that witnessing a kid crawling up backwards on a wall, it made him question a lot of things. And he eventually came to believe that there was, in fact, paranormal activity taking place in the demon house. The story gets weirder. The 12-year-old daughter was said to levitate above her bed while she slept. The 7-year-old son tried to strangle his older brother to death. The mother took her kids to the family doctor because, well, you know, she didn't know what to do. The medical doctor declared that the children were just performing. He says the whole incident is mass delusion. It's just merely hallucinations of ghosts in the home. Father Michael Magano disagrees. Father Michael is a Catholic priest. He investigated the situation, and he concluded that this was a genuine case of demonic activity. The Catholic diocese authorized Father Michael to perform an exorcism. The bishop of the Diocese of Gary, he'd been serving there for 21 years, and this was the first time he had ever authorized an exorcism. 
Child Protective Services, they came to investigate. They accused the mother of neglect. The owner of the demon house was named Charles Reed. He claims that no paranormal activity has ever occurred in the house. According to Reed, Ammons was behind on her rent, and she used the paranormal activity to avoid paying her rent. In 2012, Ammons and her family vacated the demon house and moved to Indianapolis. According to Ammons, all of the paranormal activity stopped once they relocated to Indianapolis. Now, Zach Baggins, he's the host and producer of the show Ghost Adventures. He ended up buying the house in 2014, and he made a documentary about the place. He swears that there was demonic activity in that house. He had clairvoyants come to the house to investigate, and the clairvoyants claimed that there were 200 demons dwelling in this bedeviled house. In 2016, Baggins had the demon house demolished. I've looked several stories at this, and I can't find any explanation for why Baggins had the house demolished. Now, what are we to make of this story? Is it fact or fiction? I'm uncertain what to say, but I do know this much. With All Hallows' Eve quickly approaching, I'm certain that something wicked this way comes. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 